This is not a consultation. I'm Caroline Latter. And I'm Paul Parsons. Welcome to Not a Consultation, our podcast on all things patient and public involvement in NHS service change. Today we're taking a look at decision making in service change programmes. In service change, decision making is the culmination of a process that develops and considers proposals for changes to services. And though possibilities, ideas and options are being whittled down to the best of the viable solutions at points throughout the process, there is usually a single, formal decision-making meeting that serves as the point to discharge a whole slate of legal duties in transitioning to new arrangements for the delivery of services. In Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland, these decisions are usually taken by a health board's board of directors. In England, there's a series of decisions that need to be made by commissioners and providers. Where decisions are being made that cross boundaries into other NHS areas, arrangements for joint decision-making needs to be in place. The arrangements for these meetings can be highly complicated. Hundreds and hundreds of pages of technical information for board members to digest and assimilate. The scrutiny of a sometimes hostile public audience. The possibility of a claim for judicial review or referral to the Secretary of State. And the weight of expectation from politicians, regulators and health and care system partners. These can be tense occasions. We both regularly support NHS bodies in these programmes. Probably the most high profile either of us have been involved in in recent times is South Tyneside and Sunderland's Path to Excellence Hospital Services Reconfiguration Programme. The decision was referred to the Secretary of State for review and challenged in the High Court and Court of Appeal. As its engagement and communications lead, Caroline knows the programme intimately. We invited the programme's leaders to talk to us about the decision-making process and we started by asking them to introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Dr Matthew Wormsley, GP at uh, Marsden Road Health Centre in South Shields in the northeast of England. I've been in the NHS for a little over 20 years and I've been chair of the CCG in South Tyneside uh, since CCGs were nothing but a twinkle in Andrew Lansley's eye uh, and I've been, uh, been taking that role ever since. So I'm Matt Brown, I'm uh, Executive Director of Operations at South Tyneside CCG. Uh, I've worked for the NHS for nearly 20 years, so not quite as long as Matthew. Um, but in my role, I've got responsibility for commissioning, partnership integration, and leading some of the larger system changes. So I had an executive lead for the Path to Excellence programme. So welcome to you both. Um, so today's session is um, really recognising how important effective decision making is to service change programmes. And we're really looking forward to hearing from you both, sharing your experiences and perspectives with um, our network through the podcast and helping others plan and prepare for their programmes. So Matthew, um, should we turn to you first for the decision makers perspective? So cast your mind back. It's the morning of decision making day for the programme that's taken probably, is it around two years to get to this point? What was going through your mind? Um, well, I guess the first thing is hoping that everything's going to run smoothly. Um, by that time, there's been an awful lot of work done, uh, as you say, Caroline. Um, and the, uh, there have been papers produced, probably hundreds and hundreds of pages of, uh, of documents produced that uh, everyone will have had to have spent... Uh, the last few weeks reading through and going through um, that have been 
informal conversations, no doubt, amongst the people you know, that are going to be around the decision-making table. Um, but as of yet, there's not been any decision made, um, but this is the process by which all of that informality comes comes to the, the point, if you like, of, a, of the formal decision. So as, as chair, you're just hoping that everything's gone smoothly. You're hoping that you've remembered to, to get all of the, um, the I's dotted and the T's crossed. Uh, you're hoping that nobody's found a huge hole in any of the documents um, uh, so far. You're, uh, you're hoping that uh, all of the, uh, the nuts and bolts of, uh, of the day run smoothly. So all of the, the work on making sure that the right people are at the, the right place at the right time, the, the, the sort of shepherding of, uh, of, uh, of members of the public into the, uh, you're hoping everybody behaves themselves. Um, by, by this point, you're, uh, you're starting to have run through a few, a few what ifs and a few scenarios as a chair. You're thinking about, well, what if, uh, what if somebody doesn't behave themselves? How am I going to manage that sort of, uh, that sort of scenario? You're thinking, what if one of the presenters who's due to be presenting one of the major papers for whatever reason can't make it and is delayed? And you start to think a little bit about how you would deal with all those things that you hope aren't going to go wrong. But you, you start to get this list of things that might might go wrong because hopefully by now everything is everything has been uh, been planned down to a, a, a good degree, and, and you're starting to let your mind wander into some of the uh, some of the what ifs. Thank you, Matthew. I'm going to ask you, Matt, the same question. A great deal of anxiety probably at the outset of the, the day, just in terms of, you know, it, it's in some ways it's the culmination of two years work. Although I think the decision making meeting itself is actually a point on the journey towards implementation of the service change. And I think we always start with the end in mind. So the likelihood with contentious change of IRP, Secretary of State referral of judicial review. So so as much as it is an end point, it is sort of the end of the beginning, if you like, um, in many respects. For me, in some ways, it's similar to a normal governing body in that you, you have a, a process and a content. You have a, a content, some decisions to make, some papers to, to present and some discussion to have. And then the process of the meeting, so how it works, how people interact and the setup. But what's really different is the, the process that leads up to that point. So the vast amount of work that takes us to the decision making meeting. Um, as Matthew said, we hadn't made a decision before that meeting. So you didn't really know which way it was going to go. But we presented the members with actually thousands of pages of documentation. I went back through some of it last week and it's surprising how vast the amount of information that we asked members to process is. So in the months before the, the uh, meeting, we're asking people to look at, uh, we had a couple of big workshops, but we're also asking people to reflect back on um, travel and transport assurance, health inequalities assurance, quality impact assurance, and an array of views from clinical senates, clinical networks, ambulance services, um, literally, literally thousands and thousands of thousands of pages of documentation. So then summarising those things for the um, governing body members is really quite tricky, helping them have the breadth and the depth, but also the ability to pick out the key facts, the things that are most important. So we run those through a series of workshops leading up to the, the day. Um, and then on the day itself, you've obviously got a much bigger governing body. You've got two governing bodies coming together to make two decisions collectively. Um, so there's some challenges practically in terms of how you present the paper and how you engage with people who've got quite different perspectives and represent quite different populations in that respect. And I think there were just some practical differences for me. So um, we very much learned from colleagues in, in Cumbria, actually. We spent some time talking to the North Cumbria team who'd recently had a similar 
consultation, service change process, decision making meeting, and just some of the orchestration. So the ability to have two rooms, for example, um, Matthew will remember there were hundreds of people in the sports hall um, in South Tyneside for the meeting, but we actually we prepared a separate room. Should we? Should the disruption be significant, and we need to actually take it out of the, the substantive room? So there's all sorts of different things that we thought about, which you wouldn't normally do in a in a governing body meeting. And although there's more pressure, it's a bigger decision. Actually, in terms of the presentation of the paper and the way the discussion goes, that for me was fairly similar to a, a normal meeting, normal normal governing body meeting. So you mentioned there, Matt, that you've done um, quite a lot of workshops and preparations. Can you just tell us a little bit about that process? The consultation has happened. You've had your feedback report, presumably, it's been presented. So what's what was the kind of key steps between the end of the formal public consultation piece and the decision-making meeting? Oh yeah, and there's a vast amount of, of work. I think it was, um, the end of the consultation was sort of September, 2017, through to decision-making in February, 2018. And those five months were probably the busiest, to be honest. So the collecting all the information back from the consultations you say the independent consultation feedback report and then a process by which we fed back the results the report into members of the public staff to see whether we'd got an accurate representation of, of what they'd said um, and I think that was a really good process certainly when we got to a judicial review the judge was really complimentary about that particular aspect going above and beyond the requirements of the service change guidance at the time but the, the workshops themselves are, were about bringing all the different teams and all the different perspectives, the representatives, to come and talk to governing body members and help have a discussion so that they could really make a rounded view. So we had the um, neonatal transport, transport um, teams come and present. We had the stroke teams, the paediatrics teams, the maternity teams, the ambulance service, public health perspectives, you know, all those people coming to you know, help the governing body members think about and understand the, the details of those different views. I say a vast amount of information to, to process and then by the time you get to decision making you've still got all those thousands of pages to work through but the summary report then becomes important in, in signposting members to the right places. Matthew how do you go about making sure that patients and other stakeholders can trust the decisions that the CCG are making on, on their behalf? Well first I think is, the, is, is openness so yes people can come along um, people can can read the papers beforehand people can you know we share everything that that, that we're using to to make our decision all the all the written work is is shared so people can can see just how uh, how much analysis has gone into this and, and and how many things have been taken into account uh, people can come in come on the day and attend and matt mentioned the uh, number of people in the sports hall sort of watching and uh, the meeting we gave the opportunity for people to um to to have a have their say, I think, if I remember rightly, we certainly normally do. Uh, and I think we did uh, for, for this decision-making meeting as well, if my memory serves me. Um, and um, we also streamed it uh, live on uh, on YouTube and, and recorded it as well, so that not only people who could get there, but people who couldn't get, get there could uh, could observe the uh, the decision-making process. Everything was as, as open and, uh, and, and as shared with, as we possibly could make it for, uh, for members of the public. And hopefully that will give people some uh, assurances that even though they might not necessarily agree with the outcome in, in every single way, that the, the process that we conducted was uh, was fair and was thorough. Can I add to that? I think um, 
with such contentious service changes, we're never going to convince everybody. And in a sense, our effort was not to try and convince the people who were never going to be convinced. It was to genuinely be tra transparent and open about everything we did, if that makes sense. So it's it's not being too distracted by the the most vocal groups it's making sure you do everything correctly and, and properly and and as we're required to by law and you know the regulation the guidance that we follow certainly for path of excellence that's what we did and it was noted again by the the judge in the uh in his summing up about the level of transparency and integrity that we'd we'd gone through i suspect that some people might not have agreed with that that judgment but we were never going to convince those people about the level of transparency I think if you go back now, you can still see all of the documents on the website in huge levels of detail. So everything the governing body members saw is, is out there for, for public scrutiny. And I think the, the challenge with this is about the outcome, isn't it? So the outcome is never going to be popular with everybody. There's always going to be some people who, who disagreed with that and who will therefore claim that perhaps we should have done things differently in the process. But when you look back at it with an objective eye, you can see we were really open-minded, but there's a very clear clinical evidence base and, and that's really important I think in, in transparency is setting out all that clinical evidence and that's there for everybody to see. Matthew you said there was a large live audience and it was was being streamed I'm just wondering whether that changes the dynamic around the table and the preparation that you as chair or Matt as a director needs to do to support the the, the members making those decisions on that day. Influence is the the setup of the room to a degree uh, in terms of having to set the, uh, you know, what was actually quite a large decision-making body with quite a, a lot of people uh, and set up a, a table. I think we had three cameras uh, in total to, to try and sort of get, uh, make sure we could uh, could stream from from sort of contributions across all of this this big U-shaped table and microphone. So it did take quite a bit of uh, a physical setting up in terms of the, the the dynamics of the the meeting on the day, I don't think that having live stream changed it significantly from the fact that it was a, a meeting in public and there was a very large public audience there. Um, so that the fact that there was streaming going on, I didn't feel changed the way the the meeting would have would have run. But it, it was running obviously very differently from an average governing body meeting where we might get a handful of uh, of members of the public. You know, from the fact that there was sort of a packed sports hall observing at the time that was the most uh, the most influential uh, part of the uh, the setup on the dynamics i think it's probably fair to say that many people in the many governing body members wouldn't have been conscious that it was being live streamed at the time i don't think it's not as evident when you're sat in the room as it is you know now under under covid lockdown arrangements where we're all in, in different rooms and, and on video calls so i think to be honest mm -hmm. the members wouldn't have been that aware of of the uh, live stream there were some logistical challenges though as matthew said because if you've got 30 people and you're trying to kind of keep cameras on all, all the people who are speaking at one time then that's it's, it's kind of practically quite tricky but actually i thought i thought it worked really well if you watch the live stream back now i think it gives a really good account of the level of discussion that we had so i think as well as uh, as well as archiving the uh, the papers the the minutes of the meeting we, we've archived that uh, that was recorded as well as, uh, as live stream so the full recording is available for and anybody to go back and uh, and watch publicly if, uh, if they want to. I think what's interesting about that live stream is, uh, and forgive me if this is a tangent, but that a large number of local NHS leaders were watching that. So during and after the meeting, we got quite a number of messages of people talking about um, what they'd observed and the process we've gone through. So it's quite interesting for people, obviously interested in the actual decision we were making, 
but also I think just learning for themselves about okay well what are we doing what might they want to do for their own uh, major service reconfiguration setup and structures so I think the live stream in itself was quite useful for a number of purposes to be honest. So Matt what have you learned from the decision making arrangements that that took place in um, P2E1 that you'd want to kind of draw forward into this next part of transformation that you're working on? I think the key learning for me about the decision making is in a sense not about the decision making arrangements it's themselves it's more about the it's the preparation the process that leads up to that so the key learning for me is you know you have to design with sort of two ends in mind really firstly the decision making but then secondly the work that's required after that around implementation but also with contentious change the likelihood of secretary of state referral and um, in our case judicial review court of appeal so we were quite clear from the outset that it was likely that um, with the level of interest in the local population and the level of political um, interest that we were going to end up in those in those places. So we therefore were able to plan quite carefully. Um, I mean, clearly we want to do this anyway, but we were able to plan quite carefully the things that would need to be done to make sure that actually this process was as, as robust as it could be, whatever the decision might be in the end. So the process was really important. So I think having the the team of people we established from the outset was really, really important. So obviously Caroline yourself, you know, we had really strong engagement, really strong communications leads. And I think it's fair to say often comms engagement colleagues are not quite included at the outset and that becomes a, a problem later down the line. Um, we had really good involvement from corporate governance teams from both the CCG and the trusts because actually they're very different um, governance setups. So that, that was really important. So we specifically commissioned a number of external um, impact assessments and so on. So particularly travel and transport, health inequalities were done by external parties, which was really important in, in helpfully helping with the transparency and the feeling from people that we were taking their view seriously. Now we had colleagues from NHS England who were really help, able to help us with the, um, the regulatory processes that we need to go through the redesign. So having all those people able to shape the process and the governance around our decision-making arrangements and the process leading up to that, I think was really, really important. And that's, that's the key learning for me. So, when you look back and when you look at the judicial review for path to excellence, you can see the judge drawing a clear line between all the, the documents as sort of staging points up to the decision. Um, and it's a really robust process. So from setting out what the issues are back in 2016 or so through to consultation, the consultation report, the consultation feedback report, the decision making paper, you can draw a really strong line between all of those. And, and I think that's not just happenstance, that's because you get the right people to, to ask the right questions of your team, your process, your documentation as you're going along. I particularly would stress the importance of getting the right legal team to support when you know that these changes are going to be contentious. So you know that there's a likelihood that members of the public will look for judicial review for it, then it's really important to get a view from the solicitors at an early point. So we were fortunate in having Peter Edwards from Capsticks who helped guide us through the process. I think it's not just about the regulatory environment it's about understanding the connotations of all of the documents and decisions you make in a legal context so i think that was really important for us at an early point and we couldn't have had a better support so the key learning for me about decision making is, is the preparation and the arrangements that lead up to that point so matt when in the process do you start thinking practically about the decision making arrangements and needs really early on so just to be slightly vague about it, but so I, I joined the, the team in the summer of 2017, the day the consultation process started for Path to Excellence. And I really from that day 
we're certainly planning towards the decision making meeting and the processes that would follow the likely referral, the likely legal regulatory process thereafter. So, you know, you have to start planning for at least that point. And the team had been working for months before that on the work that we need to be doing, the timeline, because there's a real choreography of assurance papers, documentation, sign offs, checks through the NHS England process, uh, let alone the legal processes that have to be gone through. You can't just kind of um, rock up two months before and, and turn it to a decision making meeting. I mean, it takes certainly for me, the planning was nine months a year before the actual decision making meeting itself. And the team have been working on it before I joined. So it's right from the outset. You've got, I don't know how best to describe it really, but it, it feels like you've got a number of different strands of, um, it's almost like pieces of wood, isn't it? A number of different strands of work that are ongoing. There's the consultation, there's the clinical input, there's the ambulance service views, there's the other impact assessments. And they kind of go slightly parallel, but you have to bring them together at various points. So they weave together in the documentation that we have, the consultation report and the decision-making report and so on. Um, and the decision-making meeting for me is just one of those kind of nodes, those those points of contact. Um, but you have to be able to plan from it at the outset. Otherwise, well, I guess you wouldn't have a wall, don't you? Prior to this process, I thought that we'd have would have done something wrong for uh, for getting to, to judicial review, but actually, you know, with, with something of this magnitude and this degree of complexity and contention, I think a judicial review was inevitable. So actually, we hadn't done anything wrong by ending up a judicial review. We'd have done something wrong if we'd ended up at judicial review and the decision had been thrown out. Um, so I think that sort of changed my thinking a little on uh, on the process. There are lots of statutory duties that need to be considered at the final decision-making point, as you've both mentioned. So how do you go about preparing to make sure those are each properly covered as part of that process? So I think this partly goes back to the, the point I made earlier about the, the team of people. So a recognition that those things need to be done and there's a real value in them. They're not just requirements that actually getting an assessment of what the travel and transport needs of the population are is really important. It's not just a box to tick. It really needs to drive our thinking about how we shape our service offering. So I think you can approach this with a number of different mindsets about the importance of these things. And certainly, I think having a, a team of people who are able to bring different expertise and perspectives helped shape ev and show everybody the importance of doing this properly, particularly when you talk about the potential for judicial review and actually not being not getting the process right might mean that the, the right outcome isn't achieved in the end. So certainly it's about getting the right the right people together. And then you have to plan and it takes time, doesn't it? You know, getting all of those different impact assessments, getting the range of views and being prepared to listen to what they say. So actually a number of different views are expressed by the clinical networks, the clinical Senate, by our ambulance colleagues, um, by public health experts. And, and we really try to respond to all of those issues that come through. Um, but that is a really challenging process. Those, some of those things are conflicting, and, and they're difficult to address but I think you have to you have to set out not just to do it but to do it well to do it properly. I think one of the roles of the uh, the chair of the, the governing body throughout that is to uh, ensure that all of the, the members of the team all of those members who are going to be sitting around the table and making that final decision are actually engaged in the process before then are engaged in actually going through all of those hundreds or thousands of pages of, uh, of, of detail and, and get that, that understanding through a number of meetings, through a number of previous meetings as to why we're doing it this way and why it's important that they're fully engaged in all of the steps of the process. 
And on that point, Matthew, was there anything additional that you did to support governing body members and other decision makers about what the roles and responsibilities were? So there were quite a lot of development meetings prior to uh, to this final decision making meeting, not not just about the the content of the papers, but about the uh, uh, educating people about the the way the meeting would would have to be run, the way the decision would have to be made, um, uh, and and support out there for you know from, for practical things like uh, making sure that people have the, uh, the the stuff in a format that. Uh, that they could digest a time that uh, timeliness to to go through it and, and enough meetings for for any questions to be to be raised and to be to be gone down into real real depth so you could we could be be really sure that everybody around that table had, uh, had fully uh, digested and comprehended uh, all of the detail that they would need in order to make a good decision i think again it goes back to having the right people involved so having our nhs england colleagues involved in the the program team that meant we were able to um, I guess help steer governing body members to to the information that they needed to help them understand the, the expectations about them. I think it's also worth saying that we really encouraged the governing body members to attend the um, consultation meetings and so on that happened during that summer so they really got a feel for you know not just the messages that were hearing from us and what they were reading about the consultation feedback but actually what people were saying in the room and, and what the the tone of it was I think that was important the other thing that's important for me is I think the consultation it's consultation is clearly important but it's only one part of the public involvement duty and it's you know the engagement work that goes on before that point is really critical I think so in shaping the way the consultation works and shaping the options that you're taking into consultation and so on, I think that pre-engagement work is is really important in making sure you properly fulfill the statute duty around well, the strategies for involvement, but leading into those consultations. Have there been other benefits that this programme has given the Southern South Tyneside health and care economy working together? I think we had such a clear consensus about the need for change um, and about the likely um, scenarios, particularly once we've been through consultation, the likely um, outcomes, what would need to be done. It really did bring the teams together across providers and commissioners. So I think we felt very galvanised into actually this, th these are the things that, that are essential for the people we serve. And it is quite rare, I think, that you get such concordance of view. Um, it's rare, certainly in, in the programmes I've been involved in. But that was really helpful and that has, has stood us in good stead for, for future decisions. It's a good question. Just as a final point, for those people listening who are planning major service change programmes and are thinking about decision making, what would be your top tips for them, your top takeaways? I don't think you can plan too much, I think is, is the top tip. If you think you've done all your planning, go back and do a bit more. For on the, on the day, certainly making sure that all of the um, physical and organisational aspects of getting the room, getting the right people in the right place at the right time with the right equipment and the right information is no mean feat in itself. And that that needs to be really quite carefully orchestrated and as a chair if that's all being done around you and for you it does make the process of actually running the meeting uh, so much easier and so much smoother so uh, so make sure as a chair you've got a good team doing all of that stuff for you i think there's there's probably two things for me the, the first thing is just very simply 
when approaching decision decision making meetings i think as early as you can i would talk to someone else who's been through the process so we had the opportunity to do that from a neighbor and that really helped us shape the some of the nuts and bolts of how the actual meeting would work the flow of it the structure and the things we needed to prepare for and that was really valuable uh, on a practical level and the second thing for me is you, you just can't overstate the importance of getting the right people involved as early as as you can when planning for decision making so mentioned earlier but the key things around people with expertise in service reconfiguration communications consultation engagement um, corporate governance from all perspectives provider and commissioner as well as your clinical leadership and your, your program team it, those things really help you think through properly the range of things that you need to approach before you get into decision making and uh, i can't overstate the importance of that dr matthew walmsley and matt brown of south Tyneside clinical commissioning group thank you very much you're very welcome some invaluable insights there. What did you think, Paul? There was a lot there. For me, the three key takeaways are preparation, preparation and preparation. Firstly, starting out with the understanding that referral to the Secretary of State and a claim for judicial review are realistic prospects and building that in to ensure total transparency at every stage of the programme. I always tell my clients that transparency is their friend and this programme is a living example of that. Secondly, Preparing the meeting, making sure that the proper arrangements were in place for the practicalities of the meeting, including arrangements for streaming, for the public to attend and for the meeting to carry on should there be disruption. And finally, preparation for the decision makers themselves, making sure they were fully briefed with access to all the information they needed to perform their function well. But I'm an independent observer on this one. You're right in there. What did you learn about decision-making meetings from this experience and what would you encourage other programmes to take forward? I was standing on the shoulders of those people who went ahead of me. So as Matt Brown was saying, we were able to take the learning from other health systems who'd been through complex and contentious transformation programmes and being able to point to their learning when explaining the rationale to colleagues for why things were being approached in particular ways. The programme went on to share its learning by the National NHS England Transformation Team with places who were further behind in their processes. Right from the start, leaders were keen to work in the best interests of patients. Leaders in Sunderland and South Tyneside really set the bar high around transparency and created a positive culture for making change. It's this that brought together the right range of professionals to provide expertise and support, helping to drive things forward in that open way engaging with partners, stakeholders and patients with a relentless focus on making services better for patients. And that's another episode in the bag. Huge thanks to Dr Matthew Wormsley and Matt Brown for joining us to share their learning and insights. You can find our other episodes on notaconsultation.com. You can find us as Not A Consultation wherever you get your podcasts. And you can send your comments and questions to listen at notaconsultation.com. And remember... This is not a consultation. It's a podcast.